Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, John 3.16. So let's turn our Bibles to John 3.16 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The World That God Loved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, I've decided to take a full week and concentrate on that one sentence. And I've said that in my mind, since, you know, this is the most famous verse in the Bible, that that we tend to suffer from overfamiliarity. We simply assume we understand this. Well, yesterday I concentrated on that first part of the sentence, God so loved it, that God should be loved. That's a remarkable thing. But now today I want to concentrate on the object of his love, that God should love the world. And here I think that the definition of what John means when he writes of the world, well, that's at stake. If God loved the world, what exactly is it that he loved? And in the minds of many, the answer to that question hardly demands a second thought. I mean, God loves all people in the world. I mean, that's the meaning of John 3.16. Or is that what the sentence means? And I ask that because, as I have said, so many of us suffer from overfamiliarity with John 3.16 that we simply assume we know what it says, but do we? You know, words mean things. You know, if I say wife or husband, those words conjure up an immediate image. If I say the word good, you think of something. If I say evil, you think of something quite different. But I have a memory of something that I said that still, when I think back on it, kind of amazes me because I'm normally not that clever. But I was then in my first year of university, but I had already graduated from a Bible school, a good one back then. But on this particular day, it was a Friday afternoon. The sociology class I was enrolled in was my last class for the week, and the class was now over. And for whatever reason, I was slow in bundling up my books and leaving the class. So the class was empty except for me in the back of the class and my professor in the front. He also was bundling up his books and notes. And I remember that professor quite well because he was an outspoken Marxist-Leninist professor who saw his job as making converts. Dr. B looked and saw that I was left alone, and he walked over to me. Well, John, good man, he said, what are you planning this weekend? I was about to tell him I was going to go to church, but then another thought came to me. I said, Dr. B, you surprise me. I know that you're a dialectical materialist and that you don't believe in objective morality. And I'm surprised that you would then call me a good man. I can't even imagine what you mean by that. Well, I could have added more. I could have said, I strongly suspect that by good, you mean that I don't disrupt your class or that I'm on time and I don't wander in late, that I dutifully take my notes and my assignments are in on time. And I could have added even more. I could have said, but when I hear the word good, I think of the righteousness of God and of his moral goodness. I think of the Ten Commandments. I think of clinging to the right and fleeing from that which is evil. And I could have said, is that what you have in mind? But I never got all of that out. I had simply told him that I was surprised that he, a dialectical materialist, would call me good. And he laughed. And then he said, well, what are you? And I told him I was a sinner. I was a transgressor of the good and that God had sent me a savior and that he alone was good. And Dr. B suddenly got very serious with me. The laughter ended right there. 
He then invited me to bring the best speaker that I could find and make the case for divine morality, and I did. And what really gets me about that conversation is that we both used the word good, but we understood that word differently. And what I also think is very important is that when we hear someone use a word, that we should take the time and ask, are they using the word as I would use the word? Because as I've tried to show from my example, that when we don't take the time, we might miss the fact that an entire worldview is wrapped up in the use of one single word, and that gets us back to John 3.16. You see, for so many, when the passage says that God so loved the world, well, we simply assume it must just mean that God loves everyone. And why wouldn't he? We're created in his own image. Yes, we rebelled against him. We went astray. But even though human beings rebelled against God, God never stopped loving them. Why should he? It's no different from a parent with his or her children. The children may rebel and discipline might even be required, but that doesn't mean parents stop loving their children. And that's how many of us have understood John 3.16, that we tell ourselves is what John meant when he spoke of the world. We simply assume it without ever asking John what he meant when he said that God loved the world. See, by my best count, in all the writings of John, that is, in the Gospel of John, then also in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and finally in the book of Revelation, John uses the word world some 110 times. It's one of his favorite words, and it turns out John has a lot to say about what he means when he says the world. See, I'm aware of all manner of theologians that have tried to categorize the different meanings that John attaches to that word world. You know, I know of one that put it into 16 categories, and you know, others have various numbers. But because you know, I'm a somewhat of a simple fellow, I like smaller lists. And as I've looked at the various lists and the various references to that word world in the writings of John, I think at the risk of being simple, that John uses the word in four broad categories. I mean, one of the ways John uses the world is either in reference to the entire universe, that is the, the cosmos, or in relationship to the planet Earth. John 1.10, John says, he that is Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him. See, that's the kind of message that we hear at Christmas time. We often hear someone say, the great creator entered into his creation. True, that's the idea. The world means the creation. And that use of the Greek word, cosmos, world, it's not only how John uses the word, but it's also how we find it in the First Testament. So in Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. See, that idea that the earth means all the created order, along with those that live there, and that's the world. And by the way, this is the way that John uses the word in the last sentence of the book, John 21, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, listen to this, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That is, there wouldn't be enough room on the planet for all that could be written about Jesus. Now, if in writing John 3.16, John were communicating that God so loved the planet, so God so loved the creation, we might even make sense out of that. John would then be saying that in the coming of sin came death. I mean, perhaps John could have borrowed from Paul in Romans 8, where Paul speaks of the creation groaning. I mean, John might have said, you know, while the creation has been damaged by the fall, God loved the creation so much that he sent his son to redeem it. 
But I'm going to argue that's not what John 3.16 means. It means something else. Now, the second way in which John uses the word world is the way in which many of us today think of it. That is, in terms of the human race. So John 1 verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world, here's the last use of world, did not know him. I wonder if you noticed that as we read that verse, that the use of the word world changed. The world was made through him, which means the physical earth was made through him. And then later in that same verse, did you see it? John changes the meaning of world. He says the world didn't know him. Well, he doesn't mean that the globe or the rocks or the trees or the mountains, they didn't recognize him. He means that the people who were created didn't recognize their creator when he entered into the world. There before them stood their maker, and they were ignorant of him. Now look at another passage. It's in John 6, verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now here the meaning is that the inhabitants of earth, that is human beings, well, we're spiritually starving. And that Jesus is the bread of God. That is, he is the one given by God to feed the human race who are spiritually starving. You know, but in that again, world simply means the human race. And I make mention of this because I can almost hear people nodding. Well, that's the meaning of John 3.16. God so loved the human race, lost and spiritually starving, that he sent his only son into the world to save us. And to be honest, many have understood John 3.16 exactly that way. And perhaps by the time I'm done, you're still going to conclude that your initial impression of this verse was right. That must be what John 3.16 means. But before we jump to any conclusions at all, we owe John the dignity of hearing him out. We know he uses the word world, both of the creation and of human beings. But it turns out that in those some 110 times when he uses the word world, well, those aren't the majority of his definitions. I mean, what else could John have meant by God so loved the world? The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth in Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, Visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. I've made mention of two different ways in which, you know, John, the author of John 3.16, uses the word world. If we were to ask and answer what John means when he says, God so loved the world, let's see. In the rest of his writings, what John means by world. 
I've already hinted at this, but, but John does more than speak of the world as the human race. He speaks of it as the human race as sinful, in a state of rebellion. Look at the wider context of John 3.16. Go down to verse 19. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You know, when John says that light has come into the world, he means the world is in darkness, moral and spiritual darkness, and especially in darkness in regards to their need for God, as well as, you know, in darkness in regards to the nature of God, who he is, and why he's to be desired. Jesus came into the world to bring light to the people who love darkness. That's the world. John 14, 16, and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. I hope you notice that. The world simply can't receive the Holy Spirit. And why is that? The answer must be in what we read earlier. It's because they prefer darkness to light. They prefer evil to that which is good. And we go beyond that to the words of John 17, 14, and 15. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The world hates both Jesus as well as his followers. They see that he exposes their wickedness, and in turn, they pour their contempt on him. See, in that sense, John uses the word world to designate that part of humanity that hates their creator and would gladly nail him to the cross. But notice at the end of that passage, when he prays that they would not be taken out of the world, that is, not be taken out of the human race that hates him, but that they would be protected from the evil one. See, when John talks about the world, John talks with the understanding that the world is the hostile fallen world. And that world also has a ruler, John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That is, this world, this this place that expresses hostility to God and to his son and to the converts of Christ, this world has a ruler. One day he will be cast out, but in the meantime, he rules and continues to deceive the world. Now listen to how John reflects on that subject in 1 John 4, verse 3. He says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. See, the world, fallen and rebellious humanity, has in it, even right now, the spirit of Antichrist, who will finally be fully revealed in the last days. So think of John 3.16 again. Who is God loving? And the answer is, he's loving his enemies. John 3.16 can't just be saying that God loves everyone or even just lost people. It must mean that God loved the world, that hostile, that God-hating, darkness-embracing, Satan-following world, that world that longs for the day of Antichrist. See, already John 3.16 sounds different than what we had thought. But I've reserved one last definition for the world right to the last. See, the letters of John are written after the Gospel of John had been completed. John had spent a lifetime contemplating the teachings of Jesus, and he's highlighting something. The world and its relationship to Jesus is what John is thinking about. And so as John thinks about that, he writes 1 John, and there he'll use the word world again. 
You know, I'm reading 1 John 2, 15, 16. There John is counseling believers as, as to how to respond to the world. Well, he doesn't mean the physical earth or the cosmos, and he doesn't just mean human beings, and he doesn't even mean fallen, darkness-loving human beings. Listen to what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here John is not using the word world to refer to people at all. He's he's rather referring to a system. And interestingly enough, that kind of language is not just found in the writings of John. Go to Matthew 16, 26. Jesus is speaking and says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? See, what did Jesus mean when he spoke of gaining the whole world and then losing one's soul? Well, he didn't mean the people of this earth, humanity, and most assuredly, he didn't mean God hating humanity. I mean, after all, the same Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. See, the implication is that they make disciples among rebels and sinners, calling them to repent. No, no. To gain the whole world must at the very least mean to gain the wealth or the riches of the world. See, what if, says Jesus, you become fabulously wealthy, so wealthy that your power knows no bounds, but in the process, you are completely and utterly condemned before God and cast into hell. Can you see any advantage to that? That's Jesus' question. Now back to 1 John 2, 15 and 16. The passage begins with warning not to love the world. I can almost hear someone who's getting ahead of me. You know, the passage can't be using the word world as it's used in John 3.16, for there God loved the world. And in 1 John chapter 2, we are told not to love the world. Must be a different concept of world. Well, that's true, but hear me out. Love not the world. And what's meant by the world? Well, three things. First, it means the desires of the flesh. We know a great deal about the flesh from the writings of Paul. See, the flesh refers to that part of our lower nature that is cyclical and habitual and longs for sinful rewards and satisfaction. In Galatian, Paul actually speaks about the fruit of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. That includes everything from sensuality to jealousy to divisions and drunkenness. That is, these are the things that the flesh wants and seeks them for satisfaction. John says, don't you love that? That's the world. Next, John says, you know, the desires of the eyes. Now, these are the things that you see and think you've got to have. And they include riches and houses and lands and empires. The thing about the desires of the eyes is that the eye sees many things and then concludes, I just can't be satisfied unless I possess that. The problem with living a money-centered life is that in the end, we are the fools that Jesus spoke of. We wanted the whole world and in the process have forfeited our souls. The world says John is passing away. That new car that you thought that you had to have will one day be rusting at the top of a rust pile at the yard of an auto wrecker. And you're willing to sacrifice your soul for that. And the last thing that John speaks about when he tells us not to love the world is the pride of life, or just plain pride, arrogance in what we've accomplished in life. 
You know, we fight and scratch and claw to be one better than the other. And in the end, we can say, look at me. I've attained. I've gained. I am to be admired. And in the process, we're no longer able to bend the knee and humble ourselves and admire and glorify God. And in this sense, this last sense, the world is the system, the culture of humanity that calls us to give up our lives for anything but God. Everything from sex to money to power, to having a great name, to despising the great name of God, the world steps back and claps. Look at the self-made man, it says. Look at the self-made woman. I don't know about you, but there are times when I have difficulty trying to explain love. I remember on my wedding day as Kathy wore that, you know, fabulous white dress. I could hardly breathe. She was so lovely. I thought, why would that picture of beauty even have cast one glance in my direction And yet here she was, ready to bind herself to me for life. I was smitten. I loved deeply. But when John says that God so loved the world, I think he must have meant at least two things. He looked at humanity and saw them lifting up a fist of defiance in his direction, then wrapped themselves in the robes of darkness and cursed the possibility that the light would shine. And secondly, I think, of a world system that encourages and praises anyone who embraces any value that does not include God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And when I hear the words that God so loved the world, it is that which we ought to see. And if we could only hear the words from the human perspective, we might think, I can't imagine why God would love an ugly bride. Why not destroy the world and create a new one? And yet John 3.16 tells us God so loved this ugly, sin-bowed, and rebellious world that he sent his only son. Thanks so much, John. You know, I'm struck by the thought and the idea that God does not require us or is in need of us or, or he's not left wanting without us. So his response to us is simply one of love. Yeah. Let me even backtrack that same comment, Ben, that there are some people who wonder how God could love us if he doesn't need us. So the only kind of love that they understand is a love that's built on need. So what do we have when we have a God who does not need and would not be in any way harmed if he chose not to love us? That's what we have to come to terms with. The God who needs nothing that we offer him that all we give him is our filthy rags. I mean, this God has chosen to love out of his love. That's the message. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, John 3.16, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change, available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. 
to request your free copy today. And to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.